Transformationist is dedicated to real stories of transformation and the insights and actions that make it possible. Our guests share from their own stories, the strategies and experiences that can help you shape transformation in your own life. Whether you are changing your mind, responding to change, or designing a life different from what you have right now, my hope is that these stories will inspire you and help you on the way. Hi, I'm Tash McGill, and welcome to The Transformationist. It's a rare opportunity in life to be able to sit down with somebody that you both admire professionally but have developed a really wonderful relationship with over the years. To be able to sit down and change the context of the conversation from casual everyday banter to really an intentional conversation about uh, transformation and change in in their work context but also in their own life. Uh, But today I get to do that with my dear friend Mark Ostreicher. So thank you so much for coming on to The Transformationist. Definitely. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Not without a couple of false starts here and there. This is actually going to be the second of a conversation um, that we've had around this this topic, but I think this one's going to be even better than the last one. Oh, I bet it's just going to be so brilliant. (laughs) It's not going to be like we've done this at all before. Uh, Anyway, I just like the transparency and honesty of that. Um, I want to uh, talk a little bit about what you do and what you have done and how you've built your uh, professional practice, which started in the field of youth work and is still in the field of youth work, but now is much more uh, related to coaching and uh, leading individuals and professional development in that field. Would that be a reasonable way of describing what you do now? Yeah, totally. You know, it's interesting. I was thinking uh, yesterday or so as we were, as I knew this was on our in my diary for this morning, um, that really I'm my work now is transformation, right? That's that's the work mm-hmm. that I'm in now, and that has not been the case historically. Um, I've been more in the field of maybe, uh, particularly in the last, uh, you know, in the second, let's call it the second phase of my career, I was in the uh, more in the field of training mm-hmm. or. Uh, uh, you could say maybe development, right. uh, education, mm-hmm. uh, but now it feels like I may have even thought of it as uh, transformation work. But now, now that I'm actually doing work with people in the with the desired outcome of transformation, now I see what it actually looks like. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, what do you think? What's the difference between uh, education and training versus transformation? How do you? Yeah, see that I mean, I would different? maybe say that education training uh, has a desired outcome of increased knowledge, understanding, or skill, whereas transformation is something very, it, it takes some of those components, but it's really looking at a holistic development and change, mm. right? Transformation, by its very definition, has change embedded in it. It's not transformation unless there's I'd say fairly significant change, resolve in mm-hmm. some areas, uh, instigation in other areas, disequilibration. <laughs> Those dis- are lots of big words. Discomfort, <laughs> right? These are all components of transformation. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about instigation for mm. a second. What does yeah. that look like in, yeah. in the coaching program? <laughs> um, maybe 
we should say what that it, what it is that I do. Would By all means, go for so it. So yeah. that it's not quite so nebulous. Um, so yeah, I mean, I spent uh, a couple decades as a professional youth worker in a church. That was my context. It's still my tribe of people. Then I spent another uh, decade and a little bit, a little more than that, uh, in a training organization. And now you could say that the organization I lead, which is called the Youth Cartel, is still in that same that same area. Uh, and we offer um, this year-long coaching program, but we also uh, offer, uh, we do publishing and other things that would still fit in that that general bucket of training and development. Mm -hmm. uh, we've done events that would fit in that also. But really my primary work is this year-long holistic leadership development program for youth workers. So that's the context. I've had 475 people go through that now over the last eight years, and it's what I spend 80% of my time doing. What was the genesis of that coaching program? Why, if you know, if we were to talk about phase one of your professional life being in the trenches, yep. phase two being, you know, training and educating, yep. much more of that resourcing. What was it that made you think there's a need for there's a need for something different? There's an opportunity to to approach this in a different way. What was the desired outcome that I was not? I mean, for me, it was my own experience, uh, which I'll I'll uh, unpack a little bit. But I I wonder if maybe there's a sense where that's always the case, or at least. It's the case when uh, when we move into hosting transformation in the best way, because mm, okay. I suppose it's possible that we could move there for other motivations, like uh, we see a market opportunity or something. Um, but I think the reason why what I'm doing is going so well for both me and the people I'm working with mm -hmm. is that it's completely born out of my own surprise at the transformation that I went through in a process like this okay. and then finding out how to modify and replicate it for my tribe, right? Mm -hmm. So at the end of my phase two, let's call it, the company that I had worked for, uh, I was the president of this company, but we got bought by a very large company. And so I became part of the executive leadership team of that big company. Mm -hmm. And we went through a few CEOs that I was reporting to uh, in that time. Our offices were on the other side of the country from them. So I was somewhat removed, but would go in monthly for an executive team meeting. Uh, and the new CEO at the end of that time decided that she wanted to get uh, executive coaching for all of her leadership or executive team. And she hired somebody to come into their office once a month for everyone else on that team. But I was, you know, on very, very, very long ways away. So she paid a very large amount of money to put me in the leadership coaching program of a noted um, psychologist leadership guru in the kind of Christian world. Um, and I did it not, I don't say I was reluctant, but I didn't choose it. Mm. It was chosen for me and not for me because there was an obvious need for me, but it was a blanket or expectation being put on all of the executive leaders, right? Which was fine and great. I think some of it was because that CEO 
uh, had at least enough self-awareness to realize she wasn't capable of doing this work with us. Right. So I went into this thing thinking, maybe this is a great gift. I don't know. At that point, my work was not deeply satisfying because um, that CEO was putting the screws on us to try to become more like them, our parent organization, which was killing us. Like Mm. it was robbing us of our distinctive uh, and our cultural vibe, which was a huge part of how we connected with our customers. Um, So I was dying. Like I was regularly thinking, should I leave? Mm -hmm. And I thought, this coaching program that I'm going into is remote from her. It's not reporting back to her. It's a cohort approach. There's going to be eight other people like me in it. Uh, this is a fantastic opportunity. I might as if I'm going to spend a day a month at these meetings, I might as well try to take advantage of it. Well, little did I know I was going to actually lose my job mm-hmm. uh, four months into that. And but it was prepaid. So I had this wonderful gift. <laughs> From perhaps, I mean, it would be fair enough to say it had perhaps been a fractious relationship. It became very fractious near the end mm-hmm. as she was positioning to sell the company, and my company, mm-hmm. and uh, and it got, re- yes, it got really ugly. I think that she was um, afraid that I was somehow going to mess up the sale, which mm. I would have never done. So I kind of got the boot, and then the company officially got sold another two and a half months later. Of course, you walked through all this with me, Tosh. So you know <laughs> this did, story. Yeah, you yeah. were uh, a, like a an observer. short-time contract <laughs> employee or something with us at that time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think living at my house at the time too. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's odd to think back because it was that was 10 years ago now. Mm-hmm. Um, anyhow, uh, that became this space where I could work out demons that I didn't even... I wasn't even acknowledging. I don't mm-hmm. know. I, I, I caught myself because I was going to say that I didn't know I had. I think I knew, but they were deep, mm-hmm. right? And, and so the deeper often, they are, the easier they are to ignore. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they were really stuffed down. I, I felt that in that year prior to that hinge point, I had to stuff them down mm-hmm. because at the... The keeping of this organization and this team of people that I cared about so deeply, to the keeping of it from being dismantled or shut down took every ounce of every kind of energy I had. Mm. Not, not only time, but even more so creativity, intention, and all of these other things, right? So um, all my emotion, whatever I had left, I was expending it on trying to keep this beautiful thing from being squashed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was only in the wake of that, which, of course, when you go through a painful, traumatic thing, it's, it, I, I don't know, I can't, I can't generalize for everybody's story. I think for a lot of people, maybe there's an instant freedom and bounce back. I didn't have that. I think for a lot of us, it's you go deeper into uh, numbness. Right. I, th- I think that's absolutely, that's been my experience and it's certainly been my experience or observation of many people who have traveled yeah. similar experiences. I think so. I mean, I um, I did some work a number of years ago. This is a, a sidebar comment, but I think it's germane to this. I, I, I did some work with a team of people. We were thinking about 
the process of significant change in the lives of teenagers. Mm -hmm. And we were kind of doing an exercise that would eventually down the road lead to some training, right? And we spent some time kind of using sticky notes to think through what are all the significant moments of change and transformation in our own lives. Mm -hmm. And so everybody came up with a whole bunch of moments or seasons and we kind of came up with a uh you know one two three word shorthand to explain what that is and we stuck them all over a wall and then the guy who was hosting it ended up spending some time looking it over and organizing them and we all had this collective aha that they fell into four categories mm -hmm. all of them hmm. Uh, and as we started to unpack them, we were like, yeah, that is really obviously one of these four categories. Those were, if I, hopefully I, now that I've set this up, <laughs> I can remember what the four are. They were, they were um, success and victory was one, but I will say that was one of the least common. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, pain and failure was another one. Uh, community mm -hmm. was a third one. And then... Uh, reorienting experiences, right, was a was a fourth one, um, and those can be positive or negative, right? Mm. I if I were to order them in terms of quantity for at least that little group, and I would say this anecdotally at least aligns with what I see in other people, the um, by far the big one was pain and loss, pain and struggle, right? Mm -hmm. By far, I mean it was all the other three didn't add up to that. Mm -hmm. And then reorienting experiences was number two. And the other two, it was almost that like community became a context that aided. It was rocket fuel on the other two mm -hmm. um, and rarely functioned on its own. And then the victory and success was, there was a few of those, but not as many. Mm -hmm. um, those, I think the victory and success more commonly works to confirm what we're already assuming about ourselves, whether it be true or a lie. Yeah, right? validation. Which so overall, again, the this pain and loss, this struggle, that is that's the pathway to hope. And I will say, while I I had that somewhere in my head because that had already that conversation had happened a couple years prior to me losing my job. But me losing my job put me into a, a short term tailspin that um, was very significant. Like, and I think a lot of it was because of how much I had expended on the uh, of myself over the previous year, um, to the point where I think it it's probably legitimate to say that year took five years off my lifespan. Like mm -hmm. it, it was. I hope it was the hardest thing I ever go through. I I, I also hope it's the hardest yes, thing you've right? ever gone through. And uh, and it was hard for everybody else too. I mean, almost all of them lost their jobs mm. in the end, right? I think of the thirty employees we had when that pro that year started. Uh, what, by the time the company got sold and people uh, moved on to it, I think three of them. Mm -hmm. still had jobs. So, you know, it was hard for a lot of people. I'm not saying the pain was only mine. But leadership is a has a peculiarity around its loneliness in that you can invite people to join you in the process, but as a sole leader of an organization yeah. like that, there is there is a uniqueness to your experience yes. that can't necessarily sure. be understood by, you know, Yeah, I, I tell youth workers that the three tasks that teenagers are 
uniquely working on because of their new abstract thinking ability and the fact that we culturally say, hey, kids, now's the time to work on these. Mm. They are identity, which is wrestling with the question of who am I, autonomy, which is all about agency. So it's how do my choices matter? Can I Mm. influence my own life direction and the world around me? And then uh, affinity, which is to whom and where do I belong? Well, those are not tasks that are limited to the teenage years. They're lifelong tasks. They're just really uh, intentionally focused during the teenage years. When I lost my job, I very quickly was in a major, I was going to say a search. It became a search. It started as a desert of those three things. Mm. I lost my conclusions about those three things. Right, So suddenly I was in this place where I wasn't sure what my identity was. As is so uh, common, I think, for people, and if I can make a generalization, I think it's particularly common for men that my job and my title were way too enmeshed with my identity of who I am. And so losing that suddenly was like, well, then who the hell am I? I, I don't know. Right? I, I really don't know who I am anymore. Yes, I was a husband and a father and maybe a friend, though I lost so much of that too, Mm -hmm. right? Um, The second, autonomy, how do my choices matter? Well, I spent a year expending every ounce of energy and creativity I could to prevent this from happening, and I couldn't do it. So suddenly I felt agency-less. Right. Right? And then the, to whom and where do I belong? Well, I instantly felt cut off from my entire world of connections, other than a very small group of close friends and my family. Uh, And my coworkers, who I did life with and were very, we were very close. I was, not only was I uh, practically cut off from them, the, that CEO forbid them from having contact with me which was a little odd for you <laughs> since you lived in my home. I do recall that. that was an in- that's, a, that's one of those interesting edicts where you're kind of like, I understand that this might be the law of the land, but really I have no practical way of living by it. <laughs> you see you coming in every day and be like, I can't talk to you. <laughs> um, and then uh, also just my whole world of friendship was primarily with people in that world of church youth work and all of these youth workers. And I... I had a very legitimate wondering or inkling that my connection to them was gone mm. and wouldn't return. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah, I that quest. Well, it became a quest. It started just as a wasteland. Right. And it became a quest. Um, I have done, as you know, I've done quite a bit of work and thinking around that concept of hope. And one of my discoveries in that year when I was really searching was that hope almost always, I want to say always, but I, I'm, I'm prone to hyperbole, so I'll, I'll couch it a little <laughs> bit, almost always starts in a place of isolation, of um, being removed from what one knows and is comfortable with. Um, and uh, I'm blanking on the word. What's the word when you get taken from your home country and... Exile. Exile. It starts in a place yeah. of exile is what I'm trying to say. And, and though that can be a relational exile. That can be a vocational exile. It can play out in lots of different ways. But that's actually the birthplace of hope once we release control, mm-hmm. right? And start to find a new 
pathway out of that. I would tend to talk about it in very spiritual terms. Um, and uh, yeah, and that's what I went through. That was my experience. Um, and there was a wide variety of factors in that, particularly in those first maybe uh, four to six months that started me on a new pathway. And it resulted because I also had this great experience of this expensive and amazing coaching program mm. with this leadership and uh, and psych- psychology guru. Our, a lot of our meetings were almost like group therapy. Right. So I'd got to work out all this stuff and name it. Mm-hmm. And that gave me a vision for what something like that could look like in the world of my tribe, which I beta tested that year. Mm-hmm. And it worked. And of course, I've refined it since then. But when people ask me, what's the primary outcome of, I just had a conversation with a potential client yesterday um, who was, he had uh, inquired about a three session one-on-one coaching package with one of our certified coaches. And I said, how about if we get on the phone and I understand, get to understand your context and need more? Because I didn't know him at all. He just found us through a Google search. Um, And uh, we chatted and I started telling him about the other stuff that we offered. And what I even said to him was, look, if you're looking for a specific problem solving that you know what the problem is. Mm-hmm. One of our one-on-one coaching packages would be great for you. But if you would really love to experience transformation, right? Yes. In your leadership, growth and self-knowledge, uh, you know, learning to lead change and be more comfortable with those kinds of things. That's what our year-long program offers. So, yeah, that's what I've been so having so much fun being being a part of. Which I think is is very exciting, um, and quite different. When you, I remember when the cartel, um, when the cartel launched the coaching program, there was nothing like that really yeah. Yeah. in the field, and yeah. now there's a lot of it. There's a lot. <laughs> My goodness. Um, and I'm glad that you talk about the the difference between coaching for a specific outcome versus mm. coaching for transformation, which I, you know, from in my experience, the 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 coaching towards a more holistic transformation generally requires a little bit more surrender of the outcome. Mm. It, there's kind of a, I'm going to lean into this process and uh, give myself the space to be surprised about what might come along the way Yeah. versus that kind of specific outcome where you're actually very much in control of the path and both are good and necessary at different times. Is there a, um, you know, What's interesting, I think, is that whilst you've had sig- significant changes, these these kind of major phases in your career, you're probably one of uh, one of the last generations to look at work in that way, that vocational pathway of uh, training in a single field and staying in that mm. field for yeah. such a long time. Yeah, um, I think you kind of just said that I'm old, but in a nice way. I did say it in a very nice way that really put the <laughs> emphasis on your accumulated wisdom and experience. And and your ability to observe trends over time. Yes. Oh, yeah. Well said. Thank you. Uh, what I'm wondering is, do you think was there was there some sort of cultural shift or shift in your industry in the field that that made the time ripe for the for the coaching program or this idea yeah. of transformational coaching to mm. come alive? Well, I will say uh, before I directly answer that or or indirectly answer that um i will say that when i lost my job i 
thought it was unlikely that I would consider in this field. Mm. Um, and I kind of considered after I, another gift I had uh, was that because I was considered an executive of uh, this large corporation, which was actually part of an even larger publicly traded corporation. So because of that, I was on an executive contract that gave me a very generous severance package. Mm-hmm. So I had time to think, which I realize a lot of people in a situation like mine wouldn't have had time. Mm-hmm. So I took you know a good two months of just grieving and not like I was choosing it. It was more, I spent a couple months just being lost. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then started thinking about what's next. And uh, I had six ideas. They were each of them were more like buckets of possibility. And only, uh, well, three of the six were still in, well, two of the six were still in this youth work area. And an additional one was another ministry, mm-hmm. kind of church-based thing. Three were outside of it. And there was a huge part of me that thought, I probably need to be done with all of this. And some of why I thought I needed to be done with it was, you know, I really felt like damaged goods at that point. I wasn't sure I was yeah. hireable. Mm-hmm. Um, and was there a fear around that? Oh, the idea massive of massive fear. Like to put yourself back out into oh, the field and then yeah. all of a sudden, you know, would people, what if people didn't want to touch you? You know, what if they weren't yeah. prepared to interview? All of those sorts all of things. All of that stuff. And and then when you've been, you know, it, I think it would be reasonable to say that the organization, you know, was definitely at that time the, the leading voice for the tribe, or at least one of right. several leading voices. Yes. And so, you know, was there a sense of from that pinnacle, oh, hi, oh how the mighty fall, or where where do you oh, even yeah. begin I to go? I absolutely felt like I had peaked, mm-hmm. and I had peaked way earlier in life than I ever thought I would. Which generally is a sign that you haven't peaked. <laughs> yeah, that's a fascinating <laughs> insight. I, but I felt like everything, I remember I, I've, I still have journal entries that I wrote uh, on some intentional times of removing mm-hmm. myself and being quiet um, from those months. And I, there's language in there about everything from here on out in my life will be downhill. Mm-hmm. Nothing will ever be as satisfying as what that job was. Mm-hmm. That that's it. I'm, I'm, yeah, I might find employment and I kind of need to, but... <laughs> that level of satisfaction is now a thing of the past for me. Mm-hmm. That was my fear. Yeah. I, I wasn't saying it was a given, but mm-hmm. it felt like a likelihood. Yeah. Yeah. Which, I mean, and, and it's so interesting. I remember at the time being um, both horrified and somewhat delighted because I had been through a similar not to the same scale, but had been through a similar experience only the year prior. And so it was, uh, there was a strange sort of companionship for me of mm. feeling like I, all of a sudden I wasn't so isolated in what my own experience had been. Um, but that fear of, I think no matter what age you're at, that fear of mortality that begins to creep in when you're, when you sense that maybe this is as good as it's going to get. Yeah. And if everything else is, is that downhill slide, then how do you even find enthusiasm <laughs> for starting again or or moving into a different field? Yeah. Mm, yeah. Which is fascinating. So and that- ended, I mean, and then I ended up kind of in the same field, but with this, I mean, people who knew me then, as mm-hmm. you did, um, 
I would, for the most part, not say that I'm not the same person that I was then. So the result was not, I, I think this is important for at least for me to acknowledge to myself. <laughs> <laughs> who, who else cares? Um, you know, that the change was not just about a, vo- a vocational upheaval mm. and finding new work that's satisfying. It was, it was much more about who am I? Is that identity stuff, mm-hmm. right? And a, what kind of person do I want to be? And I think in many ways I had conformed to a perception, my own perception of what I thought I should be in that other role. Right. And often that person that I was came off as arrogant mm. and cocky, uh, kind of an a-hole at times. There are many of those you know, uh, employees of that organization who to this day kind of think I'm a jerk and that I'm the one who brought it down. Right. Right. And I kind of have to live with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and... You know, to be fair, some of that was true. Now, I wouldn't say that I brought it down, but some of that perception of the kind of leader that I was Mm. in some of the negative terms, Mm -hmm. some of that was true. Now, I think I was living into a role that I I thought I was supposed to be. Mm -hmm. Crafted by the expectations of others. Crafted by the expectations and certainly informed by my natural proclivities, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but I'm really a, I'm a really different person now at 55 than I was at 45. And I really, here's the other thing that's awakened within me is this insatiable desire to continue transforming, right? Mm. So I, I want to be a really different person at 65 than I am at 55. Mm. Um, and I'm r- extremely confident, let's call it hopeful, that I will be. Yes. I, I, I know I will be. I mm-hmm. have confidence. Not because I know what that's going to look like. I just know it's going to continue to happen. Mm-hmm. Which is, that's not necessarily the typical plot for, I'm going to step into your genderization for a minute. Mm-hmm. That's not necessarily the typical plot line for an alpha male who, you know, moves through three phases of life. Yes. The, and the learn, the earn, and then the return. And the then to, re- to return to your question that I never answered about <laughs> I staying was in the same back. kind of vocational field for my entire uh, career. It's also not typical, I think, for that. Mm. I think this would be one one area where it's atypical. I do think there's been um, uh, an awakening in the last, uh, let's call it, 15 years. Right. Um, you know, I mean, imagine 30 years ago, books being written about mindful leadership and selling well. Mm-hmm. Or know. vulnerability. Or vulnerability. But I'm talking specifically about books that are written by alpha male yes. vocationally okay. driven leaders, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and not quite as many of those are going to read Brene Brown, but some will. Mm-hmm. And definitely, I think even those people are being informed by those ideas. Yes. Whether they've read her work or not. Mm. Yeah. But there is there is a – I see a really significant change – in leaders becoming more aware across the board in all fields, leaders being more aware of, um, I mean, the shorthand for it is of transformation and the need for that, not only in their corp, their corporations, their organizations, and in their staff, but in themselves. Mm. Um, so anyhow, that's maybe a sidebar. 
in a conversation that always welcomes sidebars. Yeah, there yeah. are certainly, though, you asked about cultural shifts. Definitely think there are have been some significant shifts. And it, I don't, I'm not an expert in naming what those are, but I definitely see it and I'm living into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you see a difference in the in this in the students who come through the coaching program now, ten years into it, versus the ones that were coming in at the very beginning, or are their expectations of the program different? Would be another way of looking at that. Uh, it's been nine years. I think my expectations are different of it, so it's a little hard for me to separate that. Mm-hmm. I think it's pretty common for people. Um, who don't know much about it, right? Uh, to come into it thinking they're going to get skill training, mm. or maybe maybe a depth of understanding and thinking, right? So if they're older youth workers who have been around the block for ten to thirty years, then they've done everything else in training in our field, and they're looking for something deeper, and they have a sense that this will bring that, and it does, but it's more than that. Mm. If they're rookies, if they're in their first, say, seven years, they think they're coming to get better skill skill training, right? Which is totally not. And we're pretty we're pretty public about that. Um, the only change I would say is that because we have 450, 475 graduates now, plenty of them have heard from peers who've gone through it. Right. Mm-hmm. And see how the word transformation or... That, you know, see testimonials where someone says, this saved my marriage or, Mm -hmm. you know, I wouldn't still be in this work were it not for what the growth I experienced here and see the word transformation and growth and those kinds of things in the testimonials or from friends. So some come in with more of an expectation of that, but it's still really nebulous because, of course, even if we desire transformation, Mm -hmm. uh, is it fair to say... Here's here's a thought for us to consider together. Okay. Is it fair to say it's not really going to be transformation if you know what it's going to be ahead of time, if you're pursuing a specific outcome? Absolutely, because right? I think it comes back to that question of, are you surrendering to a process that is both within you and outside of you? Yeah. And therefore, do you have the ability to be surprised? Right. Yes. So it, it might be growth mm-hmm. if you have a unarticulated outcome let's say i want to i want to get better at public speaking mm-hmm. right that could totally be good wonderful healthy growth mm-hmm. that could have plenty of benefits in lots of ways but i don't think i'd call it transformation there's this there there's this embedded sense of the unknown and mm-hmm. a surrendering oneself to that and a opening your hands of control and releasing that mm. if you're going to walk into the process of transformation. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think there's the transformation is defined by a state change. Mm-hmm. You know, this, mm-hmm. I was this, yeah, and I have become... I lived in California and now I live in Arizona. A state change. <laughs> that was exactly where I was going. I thought it Thanks. was. I'm pretty smart that way. <laughs> yes. No, a change, of, a change of being, a change of state of being, one might say. <laughs> Which I think it was interesting to go right back to the to earlier in the conversation when you were speaking about those four key aspects mm. um, that that we that are kind of the genesis of transformation for yeah, right. teenagers. What I think is fascinating is that as adults, um, you know, there are two key instigators of transformation. One is typically 
I change my mind about something, uh, my, my learning or my understanding of something changes and therefore I have to change the way I'm living and responding to that. Mm. Or the pain and loss motif, which is I have uh, something has happened to me. I have had this experience which I now have to respond to. Mm-hmm. Um, and that experience is t- more typically painful and traumatic than yeah. it is. Yeah. Um, than it, or it's uncomfortable at least. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, we're, we're perhaps we're perhaps more more easily wired to respond in transformational ways to pain and loss than we are to discomfort because mm-hmm. it's so easy for us to manipulate and arrange our lives to avoid discomfort. Um, so I think, you know, something like the coaching program is interesting because it kind of pushes you into it, you know, it's clearly yeah. going to push you into spaces where you'll be challenged and provoked. You know, it's interesting. I, in the, cause I still do a lot of training too. That's not really the focus of the coaching program I lead, but I speak at a lot of youth worker events and things. And I often have, have said in the last decade, we are, we youth workers are in the transformation hosting business. Mm-hmm. We are curating environments where transformation can take place. That's a really different mindset than we're in the compliance business or we're in the education business. Nothing wrong with education, but it's not the same thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Or we're in the get you to repeat the correct answers or we're in the behavior modification business. Mm -hmm. Not very few youth workers would say that, but a lot of people are... Um, leading a an approach that would really that would be the truth of what they're trying to accomplish. Yeah, if we took all of the nice language away from it, yeah. you know, what is it that you're trying to? I'm trying to make sure my kids don't get drunk, they don't get pregnant, they don't do drugs, they yeah. graduate from high and school, they re- and they say the right things about what they believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If we go back into that transformation hosting process. Yeah. Uh, and reflecting on, and that's what, my, and I would say, sorry, I'm interrupting you, but that's that's a summary of my work now too, because mm-hmm. I'm not making the transformation happen. Right, you're just hosting, facilitating a right. process by which transformation mm-hmm. occurs to the degree that the participant chooses to invest or participate in the process. It's absolutely vol- volitional. Mm-hmm. If they don't choose to go there, mm-hmm. yeah. there's nothing I can do to force it. Which is interesting for me when I work as a coach with people in the interview process, understanding that uh, the volition or the commitment, like how mm. how how willing to commit to the process is somebody, is the is the number one thing I have to figure out because I never want to take on a coaching client that's not going to be successful, mm. and yet the key element of that success is nothing I have to say <laughs> and everything about what they're right. willing to bring to the table. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I'm interested in, though, is when you talk about uh, you talk about wanting to engage in your own ongoing transformational process. That yeah. you don't want to be the same at 65 yeah. that you are at 55. Right. Who would I don't want to be the same person next week? <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, you, you, look, you're not so bad. You're not, <laughs> you're not so bad. I, I'll give you a list of some long term goals to work <laughs> I'm on. Not, I'm not asking for that. Let's be clear. Uh, but my question really is, um, I wonder the degree or the influence that that first time learning of transformational process that's, that happens in the teenage years, right? Mm. As as the brain starts to kick into another, another level. That's our first experience. I am curious to know whether or not that is in some way setting a blueprint for the way that we go about learning and transformation throughout the rest of our lives. 
Well, I mean, brain science would say absolutely. Mm. Yeah, because there is this sense, while I'm sure many of your listeners have heard about the, you know, discoveries about the brain's plasticity and how we can continue to learn new things. There's still a sense where during the uh, roughly, approximately four years following the onset of puberty, there is a hardwiring of the brain that takes place. Mm. As uh, one of the things that we discovered with the invention of the MRI was that prior to, just prior to, two years prior to puberty, there's a spike in additional neurons that get mm. added to the brain. And then about a four-year period where they're winnowed away, um, this neuron pruning that takes place. Um, and that process of losing neurons and neural pathways um, is, in a sense, the kind of lead researcher on this stuff at the National Institutes of Health. He calls it a use-it-or-lose-it principle. Mm. And the, the, the example I give of uh, where we see this that I think people can quickly get is if you move to a new place, let's say you'd moved here to the States, um, Tosh, when you were uh, 12 years old, 11 years old, you would have lost your New Zealand accent. <gasps> I know. Say it isn't so. Sorry, but you didn't. <clears throat> if you move after about 14 or 15, you'll retain the accent of your childhood place, mm -hmm. right? Because of that hardwiring that takes place. So if someone can go through, because a lot of, you know, say 11 to 15 year olds don't go through a significant upheaval. Mm. But if somebody does go through some kind of an upheaval, and again, it could be in lots of different categories. Um, and, it, well, let's say this. If they go through a significant upheaval, upheaval there is a hardwiring of how do I handle this kind of thing. Mm-hmm in my life that will stick with us. Mm. Yes, it can be learned in a different way or relearned, but it's like um, you've got a paved road to your cabin in the woods and you choose to instead cut through the bush, right? Yeah. Yes, you can go a new way, mm -hmm. but there's a paved road that's really easy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which I think it just has interesting implications for for youth workers, it has interesting implications for parents, you know, for aunts and uncles, and just for people who are sure. involved in in uh, adolescent development in any way, shape, Absolutely. or form. Yeah. To think about, okay, what actually, what are the skills or the 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 natural wiring that I am helping to embed yeah. in ways that will. And I would say that in our, we have a we have a natural inclination that has been heightened or exacerbated in our current cultural reality where we try to immediately remove the pain that teenagers are going through because we want them to be happy. Well, we don't. We try to avoid discomfort. Like we do that saying. in general. Yeah. There's been a pendulum swing with teenagers in how we view them as a culture mm -hmm. that we're isolating them and more and more infantilizing them, treating them as if they were children. So we don't want them, to, we don't want to upset the apple cart, which is, again, true for most, most of us, <laughs> most of us, but it's our become our approach to parenting teenagers. It's been our uh, uh, legal approach with teenagers. It's our educational approach, and in many ways, our church-based youth worker approach too. Mm. So, we want to keep them um, innocent, happy, all those kinds of things. the The challenge is then we, if they do go through something as strong as trauma or even the little micro upheavals that they're all wrestling with every day that are natural, normal part of adolescence. Um, if we try to, if our goal is resolve, 
Mm. Then we're hardwiring their brains for always seeking the quick resolve, mm. which I would say is absolutely has detrimental long-term effects as opposed to saying, how do we enter into this hard space? Mm -hmm. uh, how do we wait? That's pretty hard for teenagers. They're not good at that, right? Yeah. And it's probably fair to say it's not, most of us aren't good at it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah. How do we wait? How do we release control? Mm -hmm. How do we look for um, opportunities to evolve in our thinking and beliefs and understanding and practices? Yeah. Mm. I'm interested to go back to uh, if we talk about that second phase of your uh, career and, and you talked about some aspects of your leadership in that space. Um, What's the difference between who you were as a leader then and who you are now as a voice in that community? Has that been something that is also transforming as you grow and change as a person? Sure. <laughs> I hope so. I mean, there's no question that I have... I, th I think the honest truth is I have less um, notoriety Mm. today okay right so i'm less known mm -hmm. which i wish didn't matter to me but it matters it mattered way more to me then than it does now okay i'm much more comfortable with it not mattering as much you know if i go to a large event i was at a large event with my tribe uh, uh a month ago um that had about five thousand youth workers at it and I would say that the majority of people under 30 have no idea who I am. Mm -hmm. And only a percentage of those older than that do. Whereas back then, most of them, almost all of them did, right? So there, there's definitely a change in notoriety that has been, it wasn't a fun change, but it was certainly a healthy change because it forced some more humility. Right. Right. The the your use of the word notoriety is interesting because it, <laughs> it has an it has a negative context to it. Sure. I mean, you could say it has I'm, both. I'm, I'm less renowned, I'm less whatever. And depending no. on which way you want to flip the coin, yeah. some people are gonna say, Oh, notoriety, yeah, I like that. That says something about, uh, you know, a rebellious or a, a an edge of the an edge of the world kind of a, a position. Um, or there's, you know, notoriety, oh my gosh, that guy right. again. Well, you know, this brings up something that I think is probably one way of capturing the change that I'm seeing. I'm starting to see the outline, just the faint outlines on the distant shore of what some of the transformation could look like for me in the next few years. Okay. Right? As I move into a, let's call it a final chapter vocationally. That okay. might be a little dramatic because I still have 10 years, but <laughs> yeah. uh, it's not like I'm about to die, I hope. Um, Knock on wood. <laughs> yes, thank you. Is this wood? It'll do. I think Ikea. <laughs> Ikea. Um, <laughs> it's a form of wood. <laughs> um, and that is that for many years, and I would say even post that phase two in my job, so even moving into this, this mm -hmm. third phase, um, I'm going to use a word that, um, is a little risky to use because it sounds really arrogant, but we'll just we'll just work with it, okay? Sure. And that's that. I saw my role as that of a prophet, mm -hmm. okay? And I don't mean like in the Old Testament sense, chosen by God to um, be the one person who spoke 
truth, right? Mm-hmm. But I, what I mean is to be the um, person who upset the apple cart, to use a phrase we used earlier, or to stir the pot. Mm-hmm. I did definitely see myself as a provocateur. Right. Right. Um, which is interesting to be the president of a the largest training organization in a field and also try to be that. I'm not sure that was wise, but right. that's a whole nother discussion. Mm-hmm. What I'm seeing now is that while I don't know that I'll ever be able to completely get away from being a provocateur because there's something very uh, ingrained, ingrained in my identity that's part of that mm-hmm. um, and that I enjoy and that people expect from me. What I'm seeing is that my last chapter, my last decade, let's say that. Yeah, the runway to 65. Yes, is supposed to be more about encouragement than about provocation. Mm-hmm. That's a, those are really different. Extremely different. Yes. I mean, one is, one is kind of holding the finger to the, to the hot element. One is, you know, kind of that, come on, come on, come on, yeah. come on. Um, and the other, um, the other kind of, you know, feels like grandma's cozy sweater. I is that the kind of encouragement you're talking about? I don't know if I'd put it as grandma's cozy sweater because I do think there's a sense of encouragement that is still moving people forward. Right. Right. Okay. So I want to encourage them toward transformation. Mm-hmm. So more like the traditional root of the word, you know, to bring strength or to strengthen. Yeah. It's that. It's yeah. okay. All right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think of the word courage, which has at it, at its root, the word, the core, which is heart, and the courage being to have a full heart. Mm. That That's the image in my head. Okay. I want to help people have a full heart so they have courage to embrace transformation. That is not the way I saw myself or my role over the last 30 years. Mm. It was much more about how can I stand over on the side and take a shot across the bow that will cause people to go, oh, holy crap, we better make some changes. Mm-hmm. Right, and whether that was in our field, or in our pra- you know, in our practice, or even in the early eight days of my coaching program, I think I was still thinking mostly that way. I want to be a provocateur that gets people to think in new ways, which had benefits. Mm-hmm. I'm just seeing that now that in in and again, as you know, in my tribe, 55 is old. There are not very many youth workers who are this age. It's a it's a younger person's game. Yes, and, and it becomes increasingly so. Increasingly so. And so I'm finding that the words that of encouragement, particularly if they're encouragement toward courage, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that those words coming from me as an elder statesman right. have an impact that they would not have had 20 years ago. And so I'm seeing that this is a really significant new vision for who I can be and how I can have an impact. And it's kind of fun. There's a little bit of a giving up involved because I'm giving up something of the provocateur, the prophet. Yes, okay. You you don't see yourself as still having a little bit of that in the back pocket. It's uh, yeah. Like I said, there's I don't think it's possible to fully divorce yeah. myself from that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want it to take second seat. You want to be known more as the encourager. And here's the thing: I don't care how I'm known mm-hmm. uh, masses anymore. Yeah. Okay. I want to be known for that by individuals. And even saying that, I felt strong emotion. Yeah, wow. Because it, it feels really true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is, yeah, that is Excuse remarkable. me while I go in the corner and cry for a moment. <laughs> <laughs> I 
please don't please don't <laughs> speaking of that then talking about that that one-to-one which I would certainly see as a change I mean if I if I think about that event a month ago and how 10 years ago you would have been on you would have been on stage in front of that group of people you know 10 times 11 12 you know multiple times throughout yep. the weekend and yet the and and whilst you are still there and present it's in a much uh your presence is much more one-to-one in a hallway or yep. you know one to a few in a seminar room um what has become more meaningful about that one-to-one interaction um than than the masses you don't see transformation when you're standing on the stage right right mm-hmm. and man nothing gives me more joy than seeing really significant, meaningful, life-altering transformation in the people that I love, which is youth workers. Mm. And you have to be close up to see that. So when you're standing on the stage, you don't, you don't see that. You might see broad movement. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm in the image in my brain at the moment is you know, looking out over a field and seeing the effect of wind on a field of wheat, right? Mm-hmm. You might see that. There, things are leaning in a different way. Right. Um, and that's fine. That's great. But it's not what has become more meaningful to me. More meaningful to me is seeing that significant growth and transformation. At that event, the wife of somebody who went through our coaching program who came up to me I've never met her. And she said, with tears in her eyes, can I give you a hug? And I said, sure. She hugged me and she said, I, I, I almost don't have the words, but I want you to know that you saved our marriage. Mm. Now, I would say uh, it's an overstatement that I saved her marriage. But her husband going through this process saved her marriage. You, you played host And I to was the, the transformation host. Yeah. I was the host not the mm-hmm. um, not the force, mm-hmm. not the transformer, mm-hmm. right? But she said, you saved our marriage and really our family, and we wouldn't be doing this work were it not for the fact that my husband went through this. And he went through it uh, four years ago. Mm. So it's not like this was three months ago that she was referring to. Um, yeah, I mean... I will take 10 of those over 5,000 wheat stalks blowing a little bit mm-hmm. any day, <laughs> any day, right? And yeah. maybe that some of that is that uh, 15 years ago, I really wanted to see the wheat stalks blowing. Mm-hmm. I, I loved that movement. And that, that's okay. I just, I think for me personally and where I'm at in life, this is more meaningful. Is there one particular, um, is there a moment, is there a, is there a pivot point that you see over and over or that you've seen as being particularly significant that you would leave as an encouragement to people about engaging in their own transformation? In my own life? Out of your own life or out of your observation and experience? I mean, I could pick a bunch of them, right? Mm-hmm. I'll name two really quick, both from my own life. And they were both from that period of... Um, difficulty, right? Uh, in order, the first was um, that I I uh, had been practicing fairly regularly um, withdrawing retreat, let's call it, 
uh, to spend time alone um, for a variety of functions. Um, and uh, in that, in the wake of that, in my period of desert, <laughs> no pun intended, because I would literally go to the California desert, mm. um, I spent a whole week out in the desert by myself in total silence. Didn't talk at all to anyone, no communication, cut off from the internet, everything for a full seven days, which sounds terrifying. And in many ways it was, right? It was in making an intentional choice to release my grip and put myself into an extremely vulnerable place. And that was a really profound week because in that week I had been seeing a counselor in those days to help me with the extreme anxiety that I was facing. And she identified these are some of the five, the primary emotions. I think she named five of them. And she wanted me, she knew I was going out to the desert for this week. She wanted me to give a full day to each, to one emotion and give myself fully to it. So like I had a day out there where it was just anger, where I was honest, instead of trying to suppress my anger, I was honest about it. And I journaled about it and I screamed and I did all, right? Um, but the thing that was looming at the end of that week was, and I'm trying to remember what the actual word was, because it wasn't hope, but it was um, joy, I think, mm. uh, which seemed impossible. Right. Just impossible. It was looming out there. I just, I knew that I could set it aside because I wasn't there yet. By the time I got there, I found some of it, which shocked me, right? And I think it was the intentional days of the other work that I'd done. Second one is a story that you know about, and it was uh, a few months later standing. Yeah, I think you were there. No, you were on the next trip in Haiti. Mm. Um, uh, it was standing in the streets of Haiti uh, three weeks after the earthquake in 2010 that leveled that place. Um, and I was in the middle of what I thought was a protest, turned out to be a bunch of people singing church songs, worshiping. Um, and it was one of those recalibrating, disorienting experiences where I saw a deep sense of hope amongst people who had experienced way more loss than my piddly little story of losing a job, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And uh, it was a significantly recalibrate. It was, as I said earlier in our conversation here today, that uh, hope often starts in this place of exile and pain and being able to acknowledge and honestly move from that place. That's where that hit me. All in one, literally one second. Mm. It was all came in at one moment while these old toothless Haitian ladies were forcing me to dance with them. Um, so, yeah, those are two, two uh, pivot points for me, two mm. hinge points that got me onto this road. Which is, I think, interesting because one is very much based in intentionality. Mm, uh, yeah, that's a good point. You know, the other one just happened to me. Uh, yeah, one is very intentional, and the other is. I'll tell you the intentionality of the second one. Okay. The intentionality of the second one was um, it was a it was an intentionality that I uh, there was an aspect of intentionality, and that's that I was standing there with you know eight other gringos on the side of a road, mm -hmm. and I. Thought to myself, I don't want to be here on the edge of this. I, now, I'm getting it. At this point, I still thought it was a protest. Yeah. 
I want to experience this. I want to feel this. I quickly thought to myself, I'm not good at feeling. Mm-hmm. I want to feel this. In order to do so, I need to separate myself from these people that I'm here with. Right. And I need to immerse myself in this, which was a risk. The host of our trip did not want me to do that because it felt dangerous. Mm-hmm. Now, it was dangerous for me in other ways than my physical danger, right? So there was an intentionality of being a, being willing to put myself in the middle of an unknown. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But the insight was certainly uh, a surprise. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time to share Yay. your stories. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Always. I look forward to the ongoing transformation. I'm glad that you haven't got stuck in a rut Man, or me a too. group. And how, because it's so dangerous and so easy to do. Ah, ruts suck. <laughs> yes, they do. Onwards, <laughs> onwards to the new. Uh, we'll catch up with you in 10 years and see how it's all going. Oh, great. <laughs> yes. Well, maybe we could do this. We'll do this once a year as a bit of a report card. There we go. To see what is changing. Thank you for the encouragement. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Transformationist. We hope that the journey doesn't stop here. For more information about this episode and materials we referenced, please visit thetransformationist.org or join the Facebook group for more conversation about this week's episode. Just search for The Transformationist by Tash McGill on Facebook. This episode was written and produced by Tash McGill with production support from Truthwork Media and music is by Hans Van Vliet. The Transformationist is brought to you by Solar Feeder Consulting and TashMcGill.com.